Welcome once again to At Home in Your Hymnal. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Oline, we are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. We put together this program, At Home in Your Hymnal, so that people would be, are you ready for this? At home in their hymnal, comfortable with their hymnal, either in the corporate worship services of the church or in their daily family personal devotions at home. Today in episode 37, we want to take a look at, well, I guess first we're going to start out talking about creeds in general, but specifically we want to talk about the Athanasian Creed. Athanasian Creed is that really, really long creed, and uh, many churches, if not most churches, confess the Athanasian Creed on Trinity Sunday, uh, Many also do if they have a worship service on Christmas Day, and then maybe a few times throughout the year, but it's really long. It's kind of cumbersome. There's a couple of sticky, wicked spots in the Athanasian Creed, and we want to talk about that. We want to talk about why it's important for Christians to confess creeds. We want to talk about the importance of the three ecumenical creeds and what that's all about, and then dig a little bit deeper into the Athanasian Creed pages 319 and 320 in Lutheran Service Book. Pastor, how are you today? I'm doing just fine. Are you ready to uh, attack and dismantle the Athanasian Creed? As ready as ever. All right. Well, first of all, um, when people come to a Christian worship service, and I'm talking about a liturgical worship service, and... I would like to say that you will never, ever, ever be in a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod worship service unless at least one of the three ecumenical creeds is confessed. Sadly, that's not always the case today. But there is a creed confessed in every divine service that we have at Good Shepherd, and uh, there are creedal hymns that are sung in the prayer offices. So first of all, what is a creed, Pastor, and why is it so significant in the worship life of a Christian? Yeah, a, a creed would be um, a confession of faith, maybe a summation of what the Scriptures teach uh, about who God is and why he's done the things that he's done, uh, and it takes the ideas of Scripture and compresses them into something that's much more manageable than a thousand-page book uh, to remember and to recite and to confess. Uh, and the word creed itself comes from the words that usually begin these confessions of faith, these summations of Scripture, uh, which in Latin is credo, uh, which means I believe. And so, you know, for example, the uh, Apostles' Creed is I believe in God the Father Almighty. That first word, I believe, in Latin is credo. And so that credo became the definition for what all these creeds are, the confession of faith, the things that say, this is what I believe as a Christian. So when we're talking about a creed, uh, there is nothing specifically religious or Christian in the word credo or I believe. Any statement of faith is a creed. I could say, uh, I firmly believe that the moon is made of Limburger cheese. 
and that could be my personal creed. I could say, I believe that the uh, Nebraska Cornhuskers are the greatest football team in the history of college football. That would be my personal creed. What we're talking about here is a narrowed down focus, not some generic statement of belief, but a specific statement of belief for the Christian as a part of his his or her piety or daily walk, making the good confession. Am I am I tracking here, Pastor? No, that's uh, exactly right, and that that's even why I think um, you know. In the history of the United States, we talked about how we welcome people no matter what their race or creed and things like that. Uh, the idea that um, in our country you can be whatever religion you wish to be uh, so long as it's allowed to worship by the government. Maybe that's a modern issue that <laughs> we don't want to get into. But uh, yeah, though the word creed can mean all those things, uh, for us as Christians, it's, we narrow it down as more specific because uh, we have a specific important creed that we do confess and believe is true. Now, it has often been said that unless a person confesses the three ecumenical creeds, they are not a Christian. The Book of Concord, the Confessions of the Lutheran Church, begin with these three ecumenical creeds. So, Pastor, when I use the term ecumenical creeds, what am I referring to, and why are these three creeds so important and foundational? Well, ecumenical uh, refers to across the entire Christian church, and so it's not just um, Lutherans or not just Catholics, but all Christians in all times and all places, it's similar to the word Catholic, I guess. You know, this is why even when we have ecumenical councils in the church history, that means the whole church got together in one place to decide an issue. So the ecumenical creeds are the creeds that do go across the entirety of Christianity. If you're Christian, you believe them. If you're not Christian, um, you don't. And so that's that's the way we use that word ecumenical. So we have the three ecumenical creeds that we confess, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. And these all are dealing with specific heresies from the past, but they're still very important for us to to know and to confess in our truth today. Okay, so these three ecumenical or foundational creeds, without which a person rightly cannot claim to be a Christian, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. So, Pastor, uh, briefly, can you give us a little bit of uh, context and history of the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed? Sure. Um, The Apostles' Creed is kind of the shortest and simplest uh, of the three creeds. And the the oldest. And the oldest. We're we're getting to that part. Uh, It is the one that we have in the Catechism that we make people memorize and learn because it's got the basics in there. Uh, It's held by most of the churches in the West and East. Uh, It's Presbyterians, Methodists, Lutherans, Anglicans, Catholics. Uh, They all use the creed, whether they use it regularly or not. Uh, It comes from uh, the the earliest known expression of that phrase, Apostles' Creed, is from the year 390 at a synod in Milan. Uh, And its actual root is probably much earlier than that. We have at least... um, 
roots of it or forebearers of it uh, all the way back into the late 2nd century AD. Um, but it basically confesses the Trinity, what it is in its very basic sense, and what each part of the Trinity does, and yet they are still only one God. Now, it's called the Apostles' Creed not because the apostles wrote it. Uh, why is uh, why is it given that name, Pastor? Uh, the name here isn't that the apostles wrote it. Um, the apostles do have creeds that are recorded for us even in the pages of Scripture, but the Apostles' Creed uh, means that it's teaching the same teaching that the apostles are uh, had taught before, and that it's confessing the same confession, that we're all on the same page with the apostles, uh, and so that's what that name means, the Apostles' Creed. Sometimes the Apostles' Creed is referred to as the Baptismal Creed. Well, what does that mean, Pastor? Uh, it's referred to that because it's the one that we use when we baptize a baby. We ask the sponsors, you know, do you believe in God the Father Almighty? And they answer on behalf of the child, yes. Or if it's an adult baptism, they answer for themselves. And the person that's baptized then makes that same confession of faith. Um, again, when they're confirmed in our church, the uh, scriptures have no... Um, underpinnings, no foundation for confirmation, but it is the practice that we have currently. Uh, and so in confirmation, that confession that was made on their behalf by their sponsors at their baptism, uh, they then make for themselves uh, at that time. Okay, so the Apostles' Creed is the shortest, it's the oldest, it's a very concise summary of the Christian faith. Now, when you have something concise, it certainly can't say everything. The Nicene Creed is about twice as long as the Apostles' Creed. Generally, the Nicene Creed is confessed uh, at those times when the Lord's Supper is celebrated. What can you tell us uh, briefly about the history and the purpose of the Nicene Creed? Yeah. Um, in 325, uh, Emperor Constantine uh, had really come into his own. He had eliminated all the competition for his place as emperor in the Roman Empire, um, and uh, he had started to build his new capital at Constantinople, uh, which uh, today is known as Istanbul. Uh, and there was conflict within the church um, about how to understand the, the Trinity uh, and even um, the persons of who Christ was. The, the Arian controversy was uh, starting uh, at that time, and the Arian controversy is kind of like Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, they believed that Jesus was a creation of God the Father. He was the first creation and the best creation, but he still was a creation of God the Father, which changes the reality of the Trinity. And Constantine is not only a Christian, but he's also a politician, and this conflict in the empire uh, is making it difficult to rule because it's creating divisions within the people, something we're very familiar with. So he calls in 325 the First Council of Nicaea. Uh, Nicaea is located not very far away from Constantinople, and all the bishops are invited, uh, and uh, many of them come, and they sit down and they talk about what the basics of the Trinity are uh, in opposition to the Arian controversy, and they come up with the Nicene Creed. Now, it's interesting, too, because just a year ago, they found the church that the Council of Nicaea met in. Uh, it's located underwater um, in the city of Nicaea. The uh, sea levels have risen or the land has fallen, but you can see the foundations of that church there underwater. Kind of a neat thing to, to think about. And what is uh, different 
or expanded in the Nicene Creed as opposed to the more simpler Apostles' Creed? Yeah. Um, in the Nicene Creed, the there's a few expansions uh, in each section. Uh, probably the biggest expansion is in the section about Jesus Christ, uh, where it talks a little bit clearer about where he comes from and whether or not he is God. It's not just... Um, He's the only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, but it says that he's God of God, light of light, very God of very God, and that he's begotten, not made. And so these things are salvos fired directly at the Arian controversy or the the ancient Jehovah's Witnesses who said that um, Jesus was the first creation of God um, and higher creation than us, but yet a creation all the same. And when we, you know, we've confessed this creed, this Nicene Creed so many times that these words just flow off our lips sometimes without even thinking about them. The only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. These statements were put into the creed to directly counter the false doctrine and the false teachings that had become so prominent and so prevalent and uh, nearly destroyed the Christian church as if that were possible. So this creed was set up as a defense, as a defense against false doctrine, a shield and buckler against the truth. We need to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to take a look at the Athanasian Creed, the third of our ecumenical creeds. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. We all confess the Holy Ghost who from both in truth proceeds, who sustains and comforts us in our trials, fears, and needs. Welcome back to At Home in Your Hymnal, Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline. We serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. We're taking a look today at creeds in general, and specifically, we want to park the car with the Athanasian Creed. If you have your Lutheran service book, pages 319 and 320. Before we dig into that Athanasian Creed, Pastor, I want to, I want to spend just a, another minute or two with the Nicene Creed, and again, this is episode 37, episode 37 of At Home in Your Hymnal. When uh, when we talked about the difference between the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, the Apostles' Creed, older, shorter, more concise. The Nicene Creed is longer, about twice as long, expanded in a couple of areas, a couple of areas that were under attack in the uh, early Christian church. We talked uh, uh, quite a bit about the expanded section on Jesus, and every creed, every uh, uh, 
one of the three creeds that we're talking about here is Trinitarian in nature. It can be divided into three parts, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, Taking that for granted here, I just thought I better state that part. In the second part, or the second article, if you would, of the Nicene Creed, we, we see it very much expanded with regard to not only the work of Jesus, what Jesus did, but specifically the person of Jesus Christ, who he is and his relationship to the Father. Also, we note that in the Nicene Creed, the third article is expanded. The third article, which with regard to the Holy Spirit, is longer because it is talking a little bit about the person and work of God the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not a major focus of the Nicene Creed, but it is certainly there as well. So, Pastor, what can you tell us about this expanded part of the third article in the Nicene Creed as compared to the Apostles' Creed? Well, uh, it's an important part, uh, and I think we talked about this on an episode of um, Proclaiming the One um, not very long ago. And the idea of the... Holy Spirit, and where does he proceed from? This is a difference between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. It really starts to come to a head in the 6th century, and then I think in the 11th century there's a division that actually occurs as a result of it. And the question is, does the Holy Spirit come only from God the Father, or does he proceed from God the Father and the Son? The Scripture, for example, John chapter 14, 15, 16, talks a lot about this, and Jesus speaks both ways, that the Father will send the Holy Spirit and that he will send the Holy Spirit. And so we have the words there that he proceeds from the Father and the Son, the filioque, uh, and that is important, whereas the Eastern Church, they have kind of a majesty of God the Father, and he's the thing that holds the Trinity together, um, whereas we don't have that same issue because we understand the Trinity according to what Scripture teaches, I would say. And uh, thank you. Thank you. That That is an important distinction, and that uh, filioque controversy in, in America, you know, many times we just gloss over it, but it is an important Trinitarian distinction. There's one thing that I often refer to in the uh, Nicene Creed, the third article of the Nicene Creed, when we have visitors uh, come to Good Shepherd, they might ask about receiving the Lord's Supper, and I will uh, ask them, uh, will, will you be confessing the Nicene Creed with us today? And if they come from a non-creedal, non-sacramental church, uh, their eyes gloss over and they generally say, uh, what's that? Or why do you ask? There's one line that is very, very important toward the end of the Nicene Creed. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. And the fact that Baptism is not a mere sign or a symbol, but a true means of grace through which God delivers Good Friday and Easter, the forgiveness of sins to the individual. This is not confessed universally in Christendom. And so to highlight that and emphasize that in the Nicene Creed, I think is extremely significant. Yeah, and I think that's probably more of a problem here in the United States uh, where you know, our founding of our country, you know, and the settlement of North America, a lot of that took place by Anabaptists who left Europe because they were facing persecution for not believing this. Um, And so we do have a much larger 
group of people here in the United States, percentage-wise, that does not believe in infant baptism or one baptism. They believe in believer's baptism instead, and this uh, particular article of the Nicene Creed really shoots right through that. We should also mention, mention too, and I think this is important and worth talking about, uh, not to change the subject on you, but in the Greek versions of the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, the first line is different than what we actually say. Um, In the old ancient versions, it says, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, and we've changed it to say, I believe in one God, uh, the Father Almighty, as if we've, we've taken religion from being this is what the church believes and we're all a part of it, and we as the body of Christ acknowledge this to change it to become my personal faith with God. And I think that's a problem that uh, we actually struggle with, and our confession change in that little way probably reflects that. Yeah, I think that is a distinctively American or Western culture kind of a a me and Jesus kind of a thing, and uh, to emphasize the corporate nature of our confession is extremely important, and that is a beautiful segue into the Athanasian Creed, because this is truly a corporate confession of faith. And uh, I would encourage our listeners, if you have your hymnal, page 319 and following, 319 and 320, the Athanasian Creed is considerably longer. It is about uh, two and a half times longer than the Nicene Creed. It is... uh, Uh, Still memorizable length. Still memorizable, yes. It is... It is uh, delineated by verse numbers. It's so long. There are 40 verses to the Athanasian Creed. And on page 319 of Lutheran Service Book, there's a uh, happy little uh, intro. I think it's very helpful. And it's in the rubrics. Remember, rubric is Latin for red. And it says thus, Early in the 4th century, a North African pastor named Arius began teaching that Jesus Christ was not truly God. The church responded decisively in A.D. 325 with a statement of faith, the Nicene Creed, which uh, confessed that Jesus is, in fact, true God. Toward the end of the 5th century, another creed was written that delved further into the mystery of the Trinity. Though attributed to Athanasius, a 4th century opponent of Arius, this anonymous creed clearly came at a later stage in the debate. The Athanasian Creed declares that its teachings concerning the Holy Trinity and our Lord's Incarnation are, quote, the Catholic faith, unquote. In other words, this is what the true church of all times and all places has confessed. More than 15 centuries later, that's today, folks, the church continues to confess this truth, confident that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has given himself for our salvation. All right, so that's the introduction to the Athanasian Creed in Lutheran Service Book, page 319. Pastor, comments or observations on that introduction? Well, I think um, that's a a good, real short summary, and I think uh, understanding Arianism uh, is important because it's still floating underneath the surface in many places of our world today. Uh, That that teaching that is non-Trinitarian and... uh, ruins proper Christological understandings of who Jesus is, even the 
um, you know, the the words that are used in the ancient world to describe the, the controversy are difficult, and so we don't oftentimes spend a lot of time in them. The difference between homoousius and homoousius, uh, similar or the same, uh, those are important things for us. So, you know, Arius is a a theologian, a, a, a pastor of some type uh, who lived in the from the 250s to the 330s, and he um, taught this idea that Jesus wasn't actually true God, but rather he was like God and the first creation of God, but he wasn't actually God in the same way that God the Father was God. This changes who Jesus is, this changes the Trinity, and therefore it's kind of a different faith. And I think as we get to the Athanasian Creed, those are the two main points of the whole creed. The first thing you have to believe is the Trinity, the second thing is who Jesus is, and so it, it two-pronged approach to deal with those two issues of what Arianism is as we get into it. And as you've stated before, this uh, this notion, this false teaching of Arianism, while it is not called Arianism, uh, we're, not, we're not talking about uh, the, the Aryan nation in uh, Germany or America where, uh, where people think whites... Uh, skinned uh, individuals that, that that's not what we're talking about at all here completely different we're talking about an error with regard to the person of Jesus Christ and so we see this in in any uh, faith or would-be faith that denies Jesus is fully God so the Mormon Church the yep. Jehovah's Witnesses Church um, any any kind of a religion that would say Jesus was a great teacher. Seventh-day Adventists. Sev, uh, seventh, well, Seventh-day Adventists are a kind of a mixed batch, um, depending on what people believe and what their official teachings say. We have, uh, we have a lot of Gnostic uh, kind of nonsense going around where people are denying the physical, so they will talk about uh, Jesus in a spiritual way, but not God in the flesh. Uh, anything that has to do with uh, yoga or transcendental meditation or any of these kind of things, these are all uh, offshoots of the Arian heresy. And uh, sometimes it's kind of hard to connect those dots, but they need to be connected, and that's why your pastor is here. Right. And on the other hand, today, too, we have other people who say, you know, well, um, for example, I think the book The Shack has this floating underneath the surface that God the Father had his God the Father hat on when he created, and then he took it off and put on the God the Son hat and went down to earth. And so it's not three persons, but only one person in that God, uh, which is Sibelianism, which also I think these creeds tackle, though it's not quite as big an issue because it had kind of been dealt with more uh, before the time this creed was written. But it still helps us understand the Trinity properly so that all these false teachings can be put in their proper place, which is false teachings. The two main teachings uh, with regard to the Athanasian Creed, the first main teaching, and by far the longest section of the Athanasian Creed, deals with the Trinity. How the different persons of the Trinity relate to one another, the names for the different persons of the Trinity, the workings, all of these things in great, almost tedious detail. The second uh, longest section in the Athanasian Creed deals with, again, the person and work of Jesus. 
uh, really emphasizing the fact that Jesus is true God and true man all at the same time. The end of the Athanasian Creed sounds very similar to the uh, end of the Apostles' Creed, and so we have, we have some similarities there. But probably the two stickiest wickets with regard to the Athanasian Creed are the word Catholic, a lot of Lutherans bristle at that, and the last couple of uh, verses of the Athanasian Creed that seem to give the impression of works righteousness. We want to attack those two issues right off the bat when we come back from our break. This is At Home in Your Hymnal, episode 37. We're looking at the Athanasian Creed. Don't change that dial. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to At Home in Your Hymnal, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline. This is episode 37. We're taking a look at the creeds of the church, and specifically in this episode, we're looking at the Athanasian Creed. Pastor, uh, before we went to break, I talked about two uh, two things that are kind of sticky wickets with regard to the Athanasian Creed. Before we look at those two issues, uh, the Athanasian Creed is generally confessed uh, two times a year as a regular part of the church service. Trinity Sunday is probably the one that most people are familiar with. And then also on Christmas Day. Um, just in general, why is the Athanasian Creed confessed on those two festival days in the church? Well, it's confessed on uh, Trinity Sunday because that's the whole focus of that Sunday is to confess properly the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. And so maybe that one's pretty clear to see, and that's what we do in the Athanasian Creed. On uh, Christmas Day, we are celebrating the incarnation of Jesus Christ, and we want to make sure we properly uh, confess that as well, which is why we then take the time to uh, confess the Athanasian Creed. No, it's not so that uh, we can keep kids at church longer before they have to open their presents. Uh, It's because we want to make sure we understand the reality of the uh, uncreated eternal God coming down and taking on our human flesh to suffer, bleed, and die to forgive us all of our sins, uh, which is a big part of what the Athanasian Creed confesses. It is longer. It is uh, seemingly tedious, and that's one of the things that we want to do here in this episode of At Home in Your Hymnal is to break things apart and to talk about the significance of the things that we're confessing. I know that some churches, because they want to expose their people to the Athanasian Creed, use the Athanasian Creed a little bit more often. I know it's longer, makes the services go longer, can be a little more tedious, but some churches, uh, including churches like Good Shepherd, have on occasion used the Athanasian Creed whenever there is a fifth Sunday in the month, which is four times a year. What do you think about uh, using the Athanasian Creed a little bit more often in the divine service for the people of God? I think there's definitely benefits uh, in confessing it regularly so that that 
confession of faith becomes a part of us so that it's not just me and Jesus, as we talked about earlier, but rather we see ourselves as a part of the larger church, the body of Christ that believes, teaches, and confesses the reality of uh, what we are saying in this the, the words that we confess. And so it's probably got its benefit, and we probably don't confess it enough uh, that it becomes a part of us like the other creeds do, and that's probably sin on our part. Okay. The uh, the issue that we want to talk about, and maybe this is a Lutheran issue. I don't know if this is a universal problem with the Athanasian Creed. Three times by my count, the word Catholic is used. Verse 1, whoever desires to be saved must, above all, hold the Catholic faith. Verse 3, and the Catholic faith is this. Verse 40, this is the Catholic faith. Whoever does not believe it faithfully and firmly cannot be saved. Pastor, on the use of the word Catholic, why should Lutherans not be concerned or upset? Yeah, um, we have to understand what the word Catholic means, uh, and when we understand that properly, then it's not as big an issue. Um, it comes from a Greek word, katholikos, which means universal, which means everybody, everywhere of all times, across all the the different categories that you can think of, all those people uh would fall into the Catholic category. And so if you're doing a Venn diagram, it's the big circle that encloses all other circles. And so that's what the word Catholic means, and it comes into the Latin the same way, Catholicum, uh, and it's put into the creed with that word, Catholicam. It does not mean the Roman Catholic Church. It does not mean, um, you know, the Lutheran Church, which we technically believe we're the true Catholic Church. Uh, what it means is all Christians in all places at all time that want to be saved, this is the confession of faith that they believed, taught, and confessed. Okay, so um, if you look at the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, uh, in the many places, the various places that it is in your uh, Lutheran service book hymnal, there will be a little footnote every time. And whenever the footnote comes to the third article of the Apostles or the Nicene Creed, when we confess the Holy Christian Church, it's a little footnote. And in tiny, tiny little print, it says, Catholic. Have we done our people a favor or a disservice by changing the word of the creed from Catholic to Christian in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed so that we've gotten to the point where we can't hardly confess the Athanasian Creed with Lutherans getting mad and storming out the door? We probably have hurt ourselves in that regard because we don't teach people what the word Catholic means. We just, and this is probably, it hurts us and it uh, hurts the Catholic Church as well, the Roman Catholic Church, um, when we just use that phrase to refer to the people that have the Pope as their leader, we're, we're using the word wrongly because they're actually confessing some wrong doctrine um, 
in various places. We don't want to get into that. And we, as Lutherans, believe we are the true Catholic Church, the one that believes what all Christians at all times believe. And so it probably is best to have that in there, and yet we are so afraid of being confused with the Roman Catholic Church, and I think it's because we look very similar in many things in the way that we lead our worship services and we that we dress, that we're so afraid of that that— um, we've changed it. And I think we're even especially afraid of it here in the United States because our nation was founded by people who were escaping religious persecution in Europe. And, you know, remember, you remember, I just have read the history, right, uh, about <laughs> President Kennedy, and people uh, were nervous yes. nervous about him being president because he was Catholic, and they thought that the Pope would be calling the shots for our country because he was Catholic. And we look back now, and it's kind of silly, but that's the same fear that then causes us to change the word Catholic to Christian in our confession of these creeds. Okay, so uh, if anybody has any more question or concern about that, please give one of us a call. Uh, Small c Catholic in any usage, anytime you are reading, simply means the word universal. If the word Catholic is capitalized, then that is a reference to the Roman Catholic Church. It's as simple as that. Pastor, let's go to the very end of the Athanasian Creed. At the end of the Athanasian Creed, uh, uh, talking about Jesus, verses 38 and 39, this is the other sticky wicket. Verse 38 and 39 read as following. At his coming, meaning Jesus, at his coming, all people will rise again with their bodies and give an account concerning their own deeds. Verse 39. And those who have done good will enter into eternal life, and those who have done evil into eternal fire. Okay, Pastor even the most untrained Lutheran ear would see or have a red flag at that point in time. That sounds like works righteousness. Yeah. So, first of all, is it works righteousness? And then second of all, why did this particular phraseology make it into the Nicene Creed? Yeah, it is not works uh, righteousness, but rather it's trying to properly confess, and I'd say successfully properly confessing uh, the truth of what Scripture teaches. And perhaps a good place to see that would be in Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus um, talks about the judgment on the last day when people rise from the dead, because that fits in right with what the uh, context of the creed here is. And what Jesus says is that... um, when those who are raised come before him, he'll say, uh, well done, good and faithful servants, for when I was in prison, you visited me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was sick, you took care of me. And the people say, when did we do these things? And Jesus said, when you did it for one of the least of these, you did it for me. And at the same time, he says to those going to hell, uh, depart from me, you wicked ones, for when I was in prison, you did not visit me. When I was hungry, you did not feed me. It's making it sound as if the works that we do are saving us, but what Jesus is actually teaching, if you take all of his teaching together and look at the specifics of it, is that people who have faith, they are those who do good works. Good works flow out of faith. He is the vine, we are the branches that bear fruit. Um, Or he talks about the mustard tree. I think it's a mustard tree, right? Um, Where... Uh, A good tree... Tiny little mustard seed that grows into a big plant, a big tree. And I'm talking... 
on his way into Jerusalem, he goes past the tree. It's a fruit tree. It's an olive fig, tree. Fig, fig tree. Fig there tree. we go. Got the right the right plant here. Uh, bearing fruit. Um, and he says that uh, if you're a trish Christian in the faith and you are um, truly saved, that you will automatically bear good fruit. Um, and that's the reality for the Christian faith. When you are a Christian, when you are saved, when you are given faith and received it by the Holy Spirit, you automatically begin to do good works. Even the silly little things Luther says, like changing a baby's diaper, God sees as a good work of mercy and compassion and caring for fellow people. It is uh, much to the surprise and sometimes the horror of people that when they're concerned about these uh, these last verses in the Athanasian Creed, to point them to John chapter 5. They are verbatim, direct quotes from Scripture. Now let me read them to you in context. John 5, beginning at verse 25. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Does that sound familiar? That sound like uh, verse uh, 38 of uh, the Athanasian Creed? And then Jesus goes on. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Verse 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Sounds familiar. Direct quote right out of John chapter 5, words out of Jesus' mouth. And so, dear Christian, you do not have to be concerned or worried that you are confessing works righteousness in the Athanasian Creed. Pastor Moline beautifully explained good works flow from faith. And we do not cling to a dead head knowledge faith, but a faith that is living and active, and true faith will produce good works. Uh, this does not mean the good works save us. This is the good work is proof that our faith is living and active. And that is why that part of the creed is at the very end, after everything else has been confessed regarding the nature of the Trinity, the person and work of Jesus, uh, the Christian church, all of these things, and then confessing the resurrection on the last day. We need to take a short break. This is At Home in Your Hymnal, episode 37. When we come back, we'll finish up our look at the Athanasian Creed. Don't change that dial. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska.
Welcome back to At Home in Your Hymnal, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline. We're taking a look today in this episode 37 at the creeds of the church, specifically the Athanasian Creed, pages 319 and 320 in Lutheran Service Book, 40 verses long. In our previous segment, we talked about the sticky wicket with the word Catholic, uh, also the sticky wicket with the supposed works righteousness, which is not works righteousness, but a direct quote from John chapter 5, properly understood how good works follow the Christian, even in the resurrection of all flesh. Pastor, let's, uh, let's take a look at this long section with regard to the confession of the Holy Trinity. Beginning in verse 4 of the Athanasian Creed and running all the way through verse 26, we have verses that confess in great detail the Holy Trinity. Let me give you an example. Uh, The Catholic faith is this, verse 3 that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance. For the Father is one person, the Son is another, the Holy Spirit is another. But the Godhead of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit." The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Spirit uncreated. The Father infinite, the Son infinite, the Holy Spirit infinite. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet there are not three eternals, but one eternal. It goes on with uncreated, almighty. Um, The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, verse 15. Yet there are not three gods, but one God. Um, Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Spirit is Lord. Yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. Just as we are compelled by the Christian church, or Christian truth, verse 19, to acknowledge each distinct person as God and Lord, so also we are prohibited by the Catholic religion to say that there are three gods or lords. And then it goes on for another eight or nine verses with that same kind of talk. Um, Pastor, is this sheer redundancy? Is this repetition for the sake of repetition? Why is this creed, the Athanasian creed, why does it go into such painstaking, precise detail with regard to the confession of the Holy Trinity? It goes into that detail because, uh, as you well know, and hopefully our hearers know, the devil is oftentimes in the little painstaking details. Uh, The wrong teaching is in the details, and you could be really, really close but still have missed the mark. Uh, And so it wants to make sure it goes into detail. And I think the first part there that you read uh, talks about the two things that they're trying to attack. So first off, we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, because the Father's one person, the Son is another, and the Holy Spirit is another. That attacks, we talked about earlier, Sabellianism, or the idea of modalism, uh, that God puts on his father hat and creates the world, then he takes it off and puts on his... uh, 
Savior hat, Jesus hat, and saves the world, and then he takes that hat off, and then he goes in the Holy Spirit and puts that hat on and, and calls the church into existence. That's wrong. And so we say they're different persons. At the same time, we have to attack Arianism, which says they're different persons and they're not the same God. They're uh, similar, but they're not the same. And so then we go into the Godhead of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. And so we attack Arianism head on next. And then to give the details down here is explaining what that means so that no other little uh, caveat can be found or, you know, well, this isn't no, directly no addressed. No loopholes. So they go into the details so that there can be no details that are forgotten or missed. And then in the uh, those verses that follow, it is talking about the relationship of the Father to the Son and the Spirit, the relationship of the Son to the Father and the Spirit, the relationship of the Spirit to the Son and the Father. And this part is essential as well. The Father is not made nor created nor begotten by anyone. The Son is neither made nor created but begotten of the Father alone. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten but proceeding. Thus, there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirit. And in this Trinity, none is before or after another, none is greater or less than another, but the whole three persons are co-eternal with each other and co-equal, so that in all things, as has been stated above, the Trinity and unity and unity and Trinity is to be worshiped. Why is it important that the Athanasian Creed uses the language of Scripture with regard to the Son being begotten and the uh, Holy Spirit proceeding rather than incorporating some other intellectual, philosophical, highfalutin language into our confession? Yeah, uh, how long do we have to answer that question? About a minute. <laughs> yeah, uh, the quick, easy answer is because uh, the Scriptures are from God, and it's confessing the same thing that the Scripture says, and so we want to make sure we're saying what God says about himself. Uh, and I know that's a really big deal in our world today, right? Uh, we can't assume anything about anyone unless they tell it to us themselves, and that's what we're doing here with God. God tells us who he is, that the Son is begotten of the Father, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and so we're taking God at his word and confessing what he teaches. That is the nature of a confession in the Christian church, to same say back to God what he has clearly revealed to us in his word. Now, I want to I move on here um, where it says uh, in verse 27, but it is also necessary for everlasting salvation that one faithfully believe the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because it emphasizes the incarnation, that's why we confess this creed, or we should confess this creed, on the day when we celebrate the incarnation of our Lord Christmas Day. Therefore, it is the right faith that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is at the same time both God and man. He is God, begotten, of the, begotten from the substance of the Father before all ages, and he is man, born from the substance of his mother in this age. Perfect God and perfect man, composed, composed of a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father with respect to his divinity, less than the Father with respect to his humanity. 
Although he is God and man, he is not two, but one Christ. And now here I think is really a key verse, verse 33. One, however, not by the conversion of the divinity into flesh, but by the assumption of the humanity into God. One altogether, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. For as the rational soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ. These are the verses that confess in great detail, in meticulous detail, in scriptural language detail, the incarnation, the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pastor, your comments on this section in the Athanasian Creed. Again, this is addressing specific heresies and teaching what Scripture says in the face of them. Uh, for example, there's uh, I was taught this here in Lincoln, Nebraska, when I uh, before I was a Lutheran, that uh, there's the ancient heresy that Jesus was just a regular guy that God possessed at his baptism and controlled, and then when he got nailed to the cross, abandoned him there to pay for the sins of the world, but God didn't actually die. And all these things are important, and so the Athanasian Creed attacks them and says how they're wrong, and the way that you do that is you say, no, look, Jesus properly understood he has two natures, God and man, and the two are perfectly united within the person of Jesus, and that takes away these other heresies that were popular and still are today. We hear echoes of this section of the Athanasian Creed in Luther's explanation to the second article of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, True God, begotten of the Father from all eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord. Those beautiful words that, uh, in a sense, condense and flow from this section in the Athanasian Creed. Pastor, I love the Athanasian Creed, but when we confess this section of the Athanasian Creed, I get shivers up my spine every, every, every time. Uh, we got to keep going here. Um, so, and... Uh, Verse 36 and following. Now, this section sounds a lot like the Apostles' Creed. Who suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, rose again the third day from the dead. Now we're talking about not the person of Jesus, but what Jesus did, the work of Jesus. Ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father God Almighty, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. This section is very, very similar to the second article of the Apostles' Creed. Comment? Yeah, uh, it is, and that's why we confess it uh, both there and here. Um, it's important for us to understand these things. Okay, so in the time that we have left, Pastor, we've, we've uh, done a, a quick, quick flyby of the Athanasian Creed. I know that your, your daughter, Ella, um, who's what, fifth grade at the uh, time of this recording? She's 10, yep. She's 10 years old. Uh, she made it a goal to commit the 40 verses of the Athanasian Creed to memory, and I assume she accomplished that goal. She's that kind yep. of a kid. Yep. Give me your best defense, your apologia, if for no other reason, on why a Christian should confess and, by the grace of God, learn to love the Athanasian Creed. I think the uh, introductionary verses are the reason whoever desires to be saved must above all hold this faith, 
This is the Catholic faith. Every Christian that will be in heaven believes these two things. First, the Trinity. Second, the person work of Jesus. Uh, and that's the thing that holds the entire church across all the world and all the slight variations that there are together. And uh, that is important, and that is what makes us the body of Christ. In uh, It brings together the invisible church, if you will, this confession of faith. And so that's why it's so important to uphold it and to know it and to believe it and to confess it, because in, in a sense, this is where your salvation hinges and proper understanding, and not that your proper understanding will save you, but the things that we're saying here, this is how God has saved you and defined himself. How does a creed form and shape the piety and the life of a Christian? Whether it be the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, or what we're talking about today, the Athanasian Creed, how does that fit into one's general personal piety and worship life? Well, yeah, if you believe in the Trinity, then that's going to mean you're going to do all your worship in the name of the Trinity. You're going to baptize in the name of the Trinity. You're going to understand that that's the God that you worship uh, and worship him accordingly and act with reverence towards him. If you believe uh, Jesus is the things the creed confesses, then you will act appropriately to him as well. You'll uh, give the proper reverence to him. It defines all the things that we do because it is the beginning of our theology. That's why, too, uh, in the Augsburg Confession, for example, or in some of the other confessions in our Book of Concord, the article on God is first. This is the foundation upon which all the rest of our theology and practice is built. Pastor, um, what a great joy today to take some time to talk about creeds in general, but specifically the Athanasian Creed. My friends, don't be afraid of it. Page 319 and 320 in uh, Lutheran Service Book. You don't have to commit the whole thing to memory if you don't want to, but don't be uh, spurned by it. Uh, don't be repelled by it. It is a marvelous, marvelous Christ-filled and God-pleasing confession of faith. Thanks for tuning in to At Home in Your Hymnal. We'll be back again next time. God's richest blessings in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.